as we go through this series called Follower, I, I, I love the, the picture that, that Chris McKeever created for us that, uh, of course, it looks like Colorado. That's great. And, uh, and I love that. But I love this path and this journey. And, you know, Jesus talks about the narrow road. And, of course, this looks like a road that's getting narrower as you go. And that's absolutely beautiful. It's picturesque. The picture, you know, it's worth a thousand words. There's this path, though, and it's a journey. And this journey that we're on together, we're on it together, maybe spread out because some of us are faster than others, some of us are a little slower than others, and that's all good. Um, God intends for us to walk at our own pace. This journey is toward a destination, but it's really mostly about the journey itself because this side of heaven, the journey means that we're walking, we're walking with each other, and we're learning, understanding what God is teaching us and guiding us toward. It's, It's not just about your paycheck. It's not just about your house. It's not just about getting to a retirement finish line. It's not just about achieving more at work. All the things that we want our life to be about, every now and then something happens in our life and it clarifies and it distills and all the stuff that we think is important is shoved to the side and we see kind of how things really are. But it's all part of this journey. And so this idea of being a follower is centered around, of course, Jesus saying, come follow me. This is this last hike that Donna and I took that we um, did up in the Grand Tetons. You know, it was a bucket list item for Donna. And um, I'm more than happy to participate because when I join in with Donna, it's, it's not only that I get to hike and prepare and hike a lot and get ready and then we do the hike. That's all good for me. It helps me live longer and, you know, not, not live a sedentary lifestyle, which is my goal <laughs> in life is to be sedentary, but... Uh, she has different goals for me, and that's good. I'll, I'll live longer because of it. And, and it, it's not just because uh, I get to be with her, which I love to do. I love her company. It's also the things that we get to see and experience. I get to be in places that I wouldn't otherwise be because we're doing this thing that I would have never picked to do, but I get to join in and participate and do, and it's amazing. And what happens when we plan something like this is Donna says, hey, there's a hike. And inevitably, she knows the question that I'm going to ask. And the question I'm going to ask is, well, two questions now that we understand elevation in Colorado and hiking and all those kinds of things. My first question is, could you guess it? How far is it? I want to know how far, how far is this hike? And I, and I know that if it's, if it's this far, Donna's going to say it's probably this far. <laughs> and she will just round down. It's just... It's, it's in hopes of not having a discussion like, well, no, we're not going to do that, or I'm not going to, no, that's silly, let's do this one. She says, oh, but this one is so much prettier. So she rounds down and gives the, a chance for me to say yes. We're on this hike, and for some reason, in my mind, I'm sure it was all my mind, not what she said to me, I was absolutely certain this hike was about 10 miles long. And in the process of this hike, I'm thinking, well, I don't know how far we've gone, but I know it's been, according to my watch... Um, about, about four, four and a half miles, which means if the hike is 10 miles, we're very close to the turnaround point. <laughs> but it doesn't look like we're that close to the turnaround point. It looks like we have a ways to go, and, and I'm not sure what the elevation gain is going to be. All these things I'm thinking, and I say, well, I mean, I'm doing pretty good. I feel good. This is great. I, you know, I think we're going to, I think we'll be just fine on the hike. We're going to turn around soon. She said, how far do you think this hike is? I said, it's 10 miles. She said, what makes you think it's 10 miles? And I want to say, because you told me. And I, I have a recording of the conversation, you know. But I didn't record it. And uh, therefore, she was able to say, no, I'm pretty sure I told you that the hike was 15 miles. Exactly. That's what I said. And so, you know, 
That's how it went that day. This, this idea of, of how far the hike is or where we're going, there's some things that Jesus says in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that I'm pretty sure if the disciples understood where they were going to go or how long the journey would be or what it consisted of that they might have said, if I can see, if I can see to the end of this deal, I am out. I don't want any part of this. That's too hard, it's too far, it's too difficult, it's too, too, many, too many feet gained in this hike. I do not want to go. But that was not the question they asked and Jesus didn't allow them to kind of sit in that place. Here's what's interesting. The early Christians had a name for themselves. What was the name of the church that you grew up in? Let me get, let me get two or three. Just, just call it out. No, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole name of the church. Church of the Brethren. Grace Methodist. Presentation of Our Lady. All Hail the Catholics. Am I right or am I right? They have the greatest names. Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility and so on. So, so, so many great names. So in the early church, before the church really was an institution and had an organization around it beyond people serving, they had a very unique name. And it was a little more catchy, I believe, than the current names that are of our churches. Um, although there's been a strong move the last 10 years to make them catchier, you've noticed that. Um, and hipper and all those kinds of things. But the church in the early days was simply called this. Say it with me. It's a great name for a church. That's all it was called. It's called the way. And they were a part of the way where they lived in Ephesus or Corinth. It didn't matter where they lived. They were a part of the way. And so when you read the book of Acts and you read about Paul's murderous threats before Saul's, before he became Paul, he talks about people who belong to the way. And of course, this, these origins don't just exist in the book of Acts. They, they exist in other places too. And when Jesus said, hey, look, here's the deal. I want to tell you who I am and what I'm about. I am what? The way, the truth, and the life, he says. And so there is this picture of what it means to follow Jesus that gives us this impression that there is a path and that we're on that path together. And that path together means that we are trying to sort this out. It's a very descriptive name and it's one of my favorites because it is deeply connected to Jesus's invitation when he says, called out to the, those who were fishing at the time in Matthew 4, come and what? Come and follow me. And of course, Jesus meant this in a very literal sense. He meant leave your nets, leave your job, Leave your deal. We're, we're going on a journey together, but it's a physical one. I, I want you to walk with me. I'm going down this road, and we're going together. And then we're going to go up to Galilee, and then we're going to go down to Jerusalem, then we're going to go various places. We're going together, and I want you to go with me physically. But he also meant it spiritually, relationally. He, he meant it philosophically. I want you to follow me. I, I'm going to talk about what it means, Jesus says, to be in my footsteps in a metaphysical way. There are things that you cannot touch or see or feel that I'm going to talk to you about living in this way. And as I talk about these things, it's going to have to do with how you engage in relationships, how you see God. It's going to have to do with how you think about your resources and whom you trust and where you put that trust and why. 
I'm going to present some ideas about life and its meaning and its purpose. And I'm asking if you would be willing to take what you currently think, your current set of values, your current set of relationship principles, and set those aside for a moment and then just give a try. Give some effort to the things that I'm describing. And we'll call this the way. That's the way. Because it happens as we go. And so as you run your business, Jesus is saying, hey, I have some thoughts about that. And he includes a lot of them in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Luke's Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6, a portion of that chapter. And so as you engage in your marriage, as you raise your kids, as you try to figure out what kind of neighbor you want to be, I'm going to suggest some ways for you to live. And you get to decide if you want to keep following me, literally, physically down the road, and philosophically and metaphysically about these ideas and see if they don't resonate with you. I think what Jesus would be saying is this. I know who made you. I know who wired you up. I know who knit you. And I know what life is about. Not just your physical touch and see and go through it life but your daily, everything that you can see and everything that you can't see, life. And I want you to consider my ideas to help you navigate your way. And so, this is what Jesus invited them to. And so when he, when he called out to them, he said, come follow me. These are some ideas for your consideration. So consider them. If you're wondering how it all works, if you're wondering why you feel stuck, if you're wondering why something seems like it doesn't gel with how God made the world, then consider my thoughts and try living this way. And so Jesus begins laying it all out. Just one chapter after he says, come follow me, he begins to tell them what this life looks like and what it means to live in this way. And when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, two years ago, we went through Matthew chapter 5, he begins saying some things like this. Here's a look back. He says something like this. You have heard that the law that says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when Jesus says this, he's quoting uh, our Old Testament or what the Jewish people would call the Torah. And this is the, the law, capital L law that they live by. In fact, when Jesus quotes this, he's, he's quoting three different places in the Torah. It's not just in there once, it's in there over and over and over. This is, this is what was given to Moses by God, instructions for the community of Israel about how to live their life. And he does this, Jesus quotes the Torah, or the traditional oral law, several times in Matthew chapter 5. He does it again and again and again. And when he does this, he's saying, you know this, you know this. And I, I could quote from our New Testament several things and say, you know this, but Jesus says this, something different, which is coming. But Jesus, as he quotes their law, their holy book, their all-important set of scriptures, he is inviting them and also laying down a challenge to learn how to think differently. Now, just for a moment... Put yourself in the shoes of those Jewish people that were listening to the words of Jesus. Rabbi, Jesus, teacher, 
And now he's going to quote the Torah and maybe, well, you'll see, you can judge for yourself, add to it, subtract from it. He might even contradict it. What would you begin to do with that? He's going to challenge them to think differently about their, not just their faith, what they believe, but their practice, how they live. And this is an incredible speed bump for the disciples on their journey. What will they do with it? It's not just what they believe that he's going to call into question because they believe this. It's what they do. It's how they live. And Jesus has invited you to think in the same ways. Uh, There are churches that you have been a part of growing up that believed certain ways, but then you were called by someone, somehow, some circumstance, some situation to think or believe differently. And you could, just like Jesus did, quote a portion of Scripture, Old or New Testament, and then decide whether or not you're going to live by that or think differently. There are people in our church that have grown up in other churches, other traditions. You named a few of them. And those churches or those traditions had a very prescribed role for men and for women. Uh, we, would might, we might even use the term patriarchal to describe churches that are uh, led by men, served by women. And yet the evangelical covenant, the church you're a part of now, this might be a deal breaker for some of you if you didn't know it. So I'm sorry to break. Just wait till the end of the service to leave. We don't want to cause a scene. But the church you're a part of now uh, actually holds a view that men and women in ministry, in families, in theology are equal. And so some of you, you can clap for that if you want. Yay. So some of you had to come to a place in your life where you kind of had this experience. You have heard that it was said, and then there's something new that's being presented to you that you had to either embrace or reject and move a different direction. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's inviting you, and he's inviting me to evolve or change. And sometimes that change happens violently, stubbornly. Sometimes we come to it open-handedly. But on this path that's in the graphic, I, I promise this is happening to you right now, whether it was you know, recent past, near future, or this very moment, God is inviting you to change. Change what you think, what you believe, and how you live. And he does that through the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus has said, come follow me, come with me. And you said, yeah, sounds good. Until he says something that we think, well, I mean, except for that, uh, that, that's awful. We're not not doing that. And Jesus continually then will bring that back to you. I promise every time he has a chance relationally or circumstantially for you to consider and to ponder. And so Jesus says to these largely Jewish people, You have heard the law that says punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for for a tooth. This is all in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But I say, let's say it together what Jesus says. We'll say it all together. You ready? But I say, 
Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. This ought to really trouble you. And not, not just the slapping and stuff. That, that's, a, that's a whole other subject, we, and we will touch on it. But th- th- this ought to be deeply concerning to you. And it ought to concern you because Jesus literally quotes the Torah. Again, let's remind ourselves, given by God to Moses in the very holy place, law for the community of Israel to live by. Jesus says, this is what it says. This is what life is supposed to be like. For the community of Israel. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, punches must match the injury. This is how we're going to live. And they all had this as a part of, the, a part of every law. There, there are hundreds of laws written in the Torah that match this philosophy and this thinking. And then Jesus says, but I, I'm going to say something different. Jesus doesn't just add to it, he undoes it. He completely undoes the law. Now I know... He says very clearly earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, I I didn't come to do away with the law. And in many ways, it doesn't do away with this idea because the idea still remains. The idea, I'll give you some of the shortcuts. The idea is justice, justice and love. That's the idea. But the application of it is not any longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount has informed the nonviolent, resistant movements that have happened. Everything from India being freed from imperial rule to our modern day civil rights movement. The teachings of Jesus upended theology and practice in a thousand different ways. And this idea that Jesus presents is deeply complex and very hard to figure out how to apply and to address. And we couldn't even begin to do it in the few minutes I have today. But the question that you should ask from among your compadres, your your close circle in your small group, or maybe just stir it up at your Simply Supper coming up people you don't even know. You'll get to know each other really quickly. What do you think Jesus meant? What, what was he suggesting? How does this get lived out? I've told times before that my dad told me when I was growing up in, in, in school, he said, uh, he, he knew I was going to get bullied eventually. Everybody gets bullied eventually. And he said, look, if a bully approaches you, here's what I want. Now, my dad's a Christian. My dad's a follower of Jesus. But here's what my dad told me. If you get approached by a bully and you stand toe-to-toe with a bully... Here's what you do. Draw back your arm as quick as you can and hit him square in the middle of the face as hard as you can. <laughs> I know, right? And he said, nobody will ever bother you. I mean, it was like dad grew up in a prison or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> but he didn't. Dad was the youngest of four boys. And so it was kind of like a prison. <laughs> and so he, he told me this so that he could protect me. All the while, the words of Jesus stand starkly very differently than the advice that my dad gave me. Why? What was dad's chief concern? Well, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't get hurt. He's trying to protect me. Who's my protector? Me or God? And 
Well, if God is your protector, you might get bullied and you might get hurt and you might find yourself on the run. And all of these things are true. Jesus proposes something different. And what Jesus, when he says this, and he's contrasting the law, and this has taken volumes of books and many theologians and lots of people smarter than most of us in this room to sort out what this means, but it ought to be something you wrestle with. And if you're not wrestling with it, what this means and what nonviolence looks like, then you've at some point decided, I see the way that Jesus has called me to, and I'm going the other way. And that's okay. You're going to do that on some things, but God is always calling you back to that path Jesus seems to be saying that justice isn't always look the same as you think it might look. That maybe justice doesn't look like hurting someone else. Maybe. That maybe that when you take this approach, it comes from a place of vengeance and this doesn't. One approach seems to be filled with hate, and one seems to be filled with love. What about abuse? What about all the things that this seems to call to mind in our current culture? Well, of course, of course, God does not want anyone to subject themselves to abusive environments or abusive people. But maybe justice looks different than we think it does, and it's worth the struggle. It's worth the discussion. It's worth all of it because Jesus has invited you to walk down this path with him. And the path that he's invited you to, well, it's called the way of Jesus. He goes on to say this. Here's another one. This one's easier, by the way. That one, the one, I, the, the turn the other cheek, that's probably one of the most difficult, hardest, one of the hardest teachings of Jesus to wrap our heads around and even live and apply. But it's worth the struggle. This one's easier. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. That's good. Murder's bad, right? Can we all agree? Can I get an amen? Murder's bad. That was the easiest amen I'll ever get. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Jesus once again quotes the law, and now he's going to do something different with it. So he says, but I say, if you are even what? Who's indicted by Jesus' words? Anybody? Not very many of you were angry this week. Or honest. <laughs> but I say, if, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Same response as murder. This time, Jesus doesn't do away with the law. This is true, still true. Murder's bad, we all agree. But now he's going to deepen it. Murder, the extreme thing, we all agree on that. But what about anger? Is there a, a time and a place for anger? Of course, Jesus isn't talking about righteous indignation, or when Paul says, in your anger, do not, what? It means there's some anger that isn't a sin. He's talking about anger that is directed at another individual for your own reasons, your own purpose, maybe your own vengeance, or because you're offended. And this anger, Jesus says, is the same as murder. It's the same thing. I've never had the courage to say this in a wedding I have a wedding this week, so maybe I, maybe I will this week. So Tom and Leanne, Tom and Leanne, I will see. We'll see if it shows up in your wedding, okay? Here's a preview. You can maybe call me off or hire a different pastor. You, you can do either one. I've never had the courage to say this in a wedding, but what I'd like to say to, uh, especially to young people that, that are getting married, um, anything you need to know about murder, 
in regards to marriage is this. If one of you is killed, the other one is the top suspect. And it just doesn't feel like it would fit well in a wedding. <laughs> it feels like it might not land well, like the family might be upset with me or... But you know, if the wedding's going on and there I am. But this is true. One of you gets killed, the detective is going to go moving one person to the top of his suspect list. It's the spouse. It's awful to think about, isn't it? It's just awful. Yeah, I asked Tom when he walked in today, hey, is the wedding still on? So that may be a different answer after church. I don't know. We'll see. This, of course, means... And when Jesus compares anger and murder, what he's saying is this. You maybe haven't taken someone's life, but you've murdered them with your words. You've murdered them with a look that you gave them. You've murdered them with your judgment. That you may have the self-control to not follow through with the physical side of this anger. But the anger that is present in you, it all flows from that. And Jesus is saying, this, this is why what I'm saying matters. In other words, the law can keep civil order, but the problems flow from the heart. That's where they flow from. And so Jesus does this again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. And when he does this, and when he addresses these things, he has invited the disciples to walk down this path. You, me, followers of Jesus, he's invited us to address the issues of our heart in this way. And he's describing somebody who is fastidious, uh, just, you know, searching forever in the depths of their heart for things like greed and, and lust and anger. All things that he addresses in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And when we do this, we find ourselves at the end of ourselves because we have an, an incident, an altercation, a conversation, a, um, something pushes our buttons in a way. Maybe it's while we're driving and somebody else witnesses it. It's not even to them. Maybe it's at work or maybe it's with a family member, but we lose it. And when we lose it, and we say what we don't want to say, what we didn't mean to say, but now it's just out there, like toothpaste just squirted right out of a tube, can't put it back. And now it's there and we have to deal with it. And they found out what was really going on in the context of our heart. And we think, that's not who I want to be. But that seems to be who I am. And I don't know what to do about that. I'd like to be different than that. When push comes to shove and being hangry isn't really an excuse for murdering somebody with my words. But that's what I find comes out when circumstances aren't optimal for me in my life. And I would like to be different than that. But I'm not sure I'm making any progress in that direction. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins to address the source of all of that. We, we looked at one portion of it last week. I want you to grasp this in the context of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, we talked about prayer. He, he talks about all the things that we would call spiritual disciplines. In Matthew chapter 6, the beginning, Jesus says this. 
Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. And so we understand what Jesus is saying. I'm going to connect the dots for you in a moment, but before we do that, don't miss this. We understand that Jesus is saying that motives matter. We get that, right? That's, that's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Motives matter. The reason why you do something matters. And Jesus points to the motive that most people act spiritual, and it's to get the spiritual credibility and a spiritual community among people who recognize that somebody's behaving very spiritually, and we now esteem them. We respect them. We think they have something to bring to the table, some credibility in our context. Motives matter. In fact, according to Jesus, motives matter more than anything else. But Jesus is describing something deeper than even that. And so Jesus says, careful. Don't, don't, and he does this with, with all the spiritual habits in Matthew chapter 6 in the beginning. He says, don't, don't do it publicly. You're going to get some credibility for it. You're going to get some street cred, but it's not worth it. That's not what you're doing it for. But, I mean, if that's your thing, if that's what you're after, then by all means do that. But that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get. So then he says this. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts where? That's hard to do. I mean, I don't know a church that does that. Even we have a box back there, and you walk around, people see you, maybe throw your stuff your big check into that little slot you know it's so big I can't even fit it in there this is amazing and so this is this is you know I mean maybe you give online and that's that's pretty dang private but the IRS knows what you do we claim it all so it's very hard very very hard to do it in private and your father who sees everything will what will reward you what is it what is this reward and how does God give it This is the question that we wrestled with last week and that you should wrestle with as well. What is the reward that God gives you when you practice what we would call a a spiritual discipline in the context of your life? And and that could look like anything. Uh, Solitude, silence, reading scripture, worship. It could look like all kinds of things. But Jesus is saying something very unique happens when you do it in private. When you don't do it for the credibility of other people or for some sort of spiritual brownie points or anything like that, something unique happens. And that's something that is unique. This, this reward that you receive, I believe, is the very thing that's missing in every equation in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, but I say to you, it's the very thing that is missing and that is, in a word, love. That's what's missing. And this is the reward that you're given. It is love. When I find myself able to enter into the closet and pray, just me and God, I cannot pose, I cannot pretend, and I cannot hide. He sees me for who I am, and he's able to meet me in the context of love. And I receive from him not judgment, but love. Oh, it's taken a while to undo church messages from the past or maybe other voices that have crowded in where his needs to be. But over time, the voice of God is love. 
and it is mercy, and I receive it. And what happens when I receive it? Well, instead of returning anger when I get hit, no matter how I'm hit, I return it with love. Here's how we would say it this way today. There is a direct connection between becoming the kind of person Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 6, 7, all of his teachings really. There is a direct connection between becoming the kind of person Jesus describes and engaging in private spiritual practices. In other words, you paying attention to your path with God and giving energy, priority, investment to it. This is what happens when I find myself in a place fully loved and fully accepted by God. Our interactions are different than, than they would be otherwise. I, I want to give something different than what you give to me, especially if it's recrimination or judgment or impatience or hostility. I want to give love. I want to give love. And when, my, when I find myself with emptiness or something that I don't have that is needed in that moment, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, Usually it's because I have been on an activity treadmill, a busy life, and I've not paid attention to the things that God would like for me to know about me. Namely, created by God for love, loved and forgiven. Dallas Willard says it this way. When I'm asked to love my enemy, I do not come to my enemy and then try to love them. You've tried to do that before. Try to show up to some place and, and by grit and by effort try to do the thing that needs to be done and it falls flat, it doesn't work and eventually your true self sort of spills out and everybody really knows what's up. I do not come to my enemy and then try to love them. I come to them as a what? In the New Testament, love well, it's described in some ways as an action, but it's not so much an action as it is a state of being. In other words, I am love. And from that place, I come to the circumstances and the relationships in my life. And so if I come and just by sheer effort try to do the things that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, I will find myself falling short. But if I show up understanding that God has loved me already, then something different comes out. He goes on to say this, love is not a faucet to be turned on or off at will. God himself doesn't just love me or you. He what? That is his identity. And it explains why he loves individuals even when he is not what? And I know that some of you aren't nearly even convinced of that. But God wants us to approach him in private, in love, and receive love. When we receive this love, something unique happens in our hearts and in our minds. This is why Jesus says over and over and over again, but when you give, do what you need to do. Engage in your relationship with God in private. That doesn't mean you don't live in community. It doesn't mean that God hasn't placed you around people where you need friction to figure out what did he mean when he said love your enemies? What did he mean when he said turn the other cheek? But there is a reward that is coming to you when you understand the words of Jesus. And that reward is a reward of love. And so what does it look like in your life as you live out 
spiritual practices. Some of you picked up Richard Foster's book, A Celebration of Discipline, and you've dug into it. What he describes is that God comes to you as you already are. You're only learning about your identity, not becoming something different, holy and altogether. He describes it this way because that's how Jesus describes it when he describes the spiritual disciplines. What does your week look like? We used two pictures last week to kind of give us a picture. One erroneous, climbing a ladder, trying to attain something. One, the beautiful picture of a prime delivery truck in your driveway. You got to watch last week's to catch on, okay? But the point is this, God wants to give and you receive. And when you receive, you have that in turn to give. In other words, you have God's holy love to give to the people around you. And if you, like me, find yourself coming up short when the time comes, then God's inviting you to receive from him that love. There's a concept all throughout the scriptures. I'll invite the worship team on up. That's referred to as the blessing. But we read about it in the lives of Jacob and Esau. It was stolen horribly. We read about it when God called Abraham. And God invited Abraham to go on a journey, just like the disciples were invited to go on the journey. And God said to Abraham, I'm calling you. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to other people. It's the responsibility that every one of you who are parents have in this room to look at your children and say, God created you, he made you. You're the only ones that can say that. A teacher can say it. You know, a grandparent can say it, but as parents, for you to say it, it means I see you, I understand how you're made, God made you, and he loves you, and you're, you're perfect the way you are. Will God help them change and grow? Of course. But God is the one who knit them and formed them. It's this blessing. This reward that is described in Matthew 6, that God has invited us to receive, is that blessing. That you are enough that I've given you all that you need, that I will take care of you, that I will forgive you, that I will walk with you, that I will never leave you or forsake you. You belong to me. These are the promises of Scripture given to us by a God that loves us deeply, thoughtfully, closely. And this is the promise that you and I are invited to embrace when we come to God and God alone. I know, I know, you've received thousands of messages throughout your lifetime that you need to change in order to be accepted, that you're not really fully loved, that you could be forgiven if only you perform in this way or stop doing that thing that you said you would stop doing so long ago. But God's message is different than the ones that we have given to each other. And God says, come to me in private. You have something to give, bring it to me in private. You don't need the adulation or the credibility from other people. I love you, God says. And it isn't because he loves as the verb. He is love. He can do nothing else but love. I know, I know you've been told all the scriptural stories that combat against that. But I want you to understand this deeply and thoughtfully. Every story you know is infused with, covered by, and motivated by God's love for you to bring you to a place of surrender where we say, 
Yeah, I'll follow you. And so, Lord, right now in this place, we come to you open-handed, willing to ask this question about our, our spiritual habits and how we live in these teachings of Jesus that we find so confounding and confusing. We first admit that they are and that they feel impossible to live by. But, Lord, we believe that with you all things are possible and that if you fill us with the depth of your love, your perfect love, if we come to you on the regular, experiencing your mercy and your grace, this this blessing that you have promised to give us over and over throughout Scripture, when we receive this blessing, we move and live in you, and we love with your love. And so then it becomes easy to look at our enemy as somebody who doesn't need recrimination or injury or revenge We see our enemy as someone who needs your love, and so we love in that way. Lord, help us to receive this blessing, that we may give it to those in our circle that desperately need it. We believe it is the only thing that not only can change us, but that can change the world inside out. And so just stay in that prayerful space right now in this room, online, in your living rooms, And as we do so, allow these lyrics, as you hear them from Josh and the team, the music, allow these lyrics to transform our hearts to a place where we have this love that you have given us, God, to give to the people around us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say together.